From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As the third criminal trial related to the death of Elijah McClain continues, changes are happening statewide based on the facts surrounding his death. How law enforcement and lawmakers alike are working to ban so-called excited delirium here in Colorado. Don't just stand there, let's get to it. If you were around in the 1990s, you probably heard of voguing. Madonna may have helped bring the highly stylized dance form into the mainstream, but did you know it was created by members of the Black and Latino queer community back in the 1960s? Ballroom culture is life. It's community for many people who did not have access to everyday society. I want to not only highlight what we celebrate, but also the things that also tear us down. Colorado's ballroom scene and how it's influencing pop culture today. Your car used to take you places, but it can't anymore. If you donate it to CPR, it can take you places again, down the road to new ideas, new discoveries, and through your donation, hundreds of thousands of other people will be able to come along for the ride because your donation funds the radio you rely on. Get started on the safe and simple car donation process at cpr.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Even as the third criminal trial related to the death of Elijah McClain continues this week, changes are happening statewide based on the facts surrounding his death. Excited delirium, which is a diagnosis that's been used to describe someone who's in a hyperactive or agitated state, will no longer be used in law enforcement training or by law enforcement officers in Colorado. Joining me now to take a closer look are CPR's Allison Sherry and Tom Hess. Hi, you two. Hey, Chandra. Hello. The move to strike excited delirium was passed at the state peace officer standards and training board meeting unanimously and without debate. It comes as two Aurora paramedics stand trial on felony charges for administering an overdose of the sedative ketamine to Elijah McClain because they say they thought he was suffering from this condition. Allison, I understand critics of that diagnosis say that decision was long overdue. Yeah, well, you know, largely the term excited delirium has been debunked as junk science in the last few years. A number of reputable medical groups have decided not to recognize the term as a legitimate medical diagnosis. And that includes the National Association of Medical Examiners, an emergency physicians group, and the American Medical Association. But none of this junk science piece is news to the advocates who've long been critical of the term. It's generally a law enforcement diagnosis, and it's been used to justify use of force in these situations. Here's Hashim Coates. He's a community activist and a political strategist in Aurora. That feeds into the Black throat of we don't have feelings, we need less sleep, we're strong, this beast mentality type of thing. Him being wild, him being in a fit. Well, he was going through excited delirium. It's the justification. It's the legal justification for the racist stereotypes. How did this term come about? Well, it came about in the 1980s, and it was associated with drug abuse. Um, It was first used by a forensic pathologist to explain the deaths of seven people who'd used cocaine. All of them had been forcibly restrained by police in Florida, and five of them died. Then police departments across the country started using it in training and for encounters with the public. 
But, you know, we know now that the term has a history of being racially charged. The Virginia Law Review looked at 166 in-custody deaths over a 10-year period between 2010 and 2020 and found that 56% of those attributed quote-unquote excited delirium to Black and Latino victims. Um, critics say the diagnosis is often used to absolve law enforcement from culpability when someone dies in custody. And ketamine became, for lack of a better term, one way to treat it. Yeah. Um, and according to the Drug Enforcement Agency, ketamine can induce a state of sedation, meaning it can feel calm and relaxed. It, it can also have side effects, though, and it's been widely debated as a treatment for excited delirium. In fact, there was an anesthesiologist on the stand in the paramedics trial just this week who was talking about some of the counter effects to ketamine to treat this. And while we're on this point, I wanted to note that I talked to an emergency room doctor this week. His name is Dr. Romnick Dollywall, who works in Douglas County. And he said that from a medical perspective, something as serious as severe agitation, um, you know, and hyperactivity, which can cause death easily, should be handled by medical professionals. Yeah, I mean, I think from an emergency medicine and, and you know, EMS perspective, the use of hypnotic or sedative agents to incapacitate someone just for law enforcement purposes, that's not what we believe in. You know, if there's no legitimate medical reason that this there should be no treatment, right? And so I think, you know, speaking from a medical standpoint, this is a clinical assessment and judgment, and it should be completely separate from any type of law enforcement assessment, right? And as we've noted, medical experts have dismissed excited delirium as a real diagnosis. That's correct. And it's going by the wayside. Um, in October, California became the first state to ban the use of excited delirium as a cause of death on death certificates statewide. Tom, you spoke with the doctor who served on a state panel here in Colorado that reviewed the use of ketamine to treat excited delirium. What did she say? Dr. Jamira Jones is an emergency care specialist, and that panel that she served on convened a couple of years ago to look over a lot of these cases. And something that comes up in the excited delirium conversation is this white paper from 2009 that was one of those papers that sort of justified this junk science that was going around. And here's what she had to say about that paper. Typically, when we're diagnosing or doing a medical evaluation, there's criteria we look at. But when you look at the white paper and look at the terminology that's used to define what excited delirium is, it's very subjective. Words like superhuman force or aggressive towards police or imperious to pain. It's not really a diagnostic criteria. It's very nonspecific and subjective. And so that lends itself to very unfair bias practices that predominantly affect people in marginalized communities, such as Black men. And, you know, the history alone has always commented on Black people in general being more aggressive or not being able to really tolerate pain. And so it just lends itself to a lot of biases. And so I think with ASAP releasing that paper in 2009, that allowed a lot of law enforcement and other individuals and expert witnesses to say, well, this patient clearly demonstrated excited delirium. And so this was the diagnosis and the cause, and therefore this is why they're deceased or why they put it on death certificates. As an emergency medicine specialist, what has she observed? Well, one thing Dr. Jones will stress is this is not easy to do. Diagnosing somebody 
who's in a distressed state, in a hospital setting, surrounded by decades of experience and millions of dollars of equipment is still super hard to say nothing of trying to do it in a park at two in the morning when someone is stopped by police. Well, as an emergency medicine physician, we see all spectrums of medical cases. I'm quite familiar with delirium or patients being delirious or altered mental status when they come in and trying to evaluate the root cause of it. And yeah, we've had a witnessed or experienced a fair share of patients that would come in pretty combative and would have to either sedate or restrain to kind of calm them down in order to get a physical exam and medical history. Allison, tell us how this aligns with the post decision to end using excited delirium as a diagnosis here in Colorado. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, they're obviously behind the national medical groups on this. Um, But they started looking into striking the term from all law enforcement language and training documents about six months ago or so. A subcommittee was tasked with improving arrest control tactics and training. And when I was at that post meeting, when they passed the language to strike excited delirium from all the training documents, and I talked to Fort Collins Police Chief Jeff Swoboda. And he supports the move away from the diagnosis in favor of more neutral terms. Do you guys use it in Fort Collins? As far as? Like as a term? I mean, is it like in police it's reports some, sometimes? Oh, for sure. Or? It's something that is constantly talked about and signs to look for. And really, I think part of it is moving more towards distress of any type. Like if a person is being arrested and the care that they need to receive after arrest is, is where I was, my understanding of it was. State officials in that meeting also voted to strike other terms from law enforcement training manuals, including, quote unquote, cocaine psychosis and, quote, sudden in custody death. Tom, before the Post decision, some state lawmakers were pushing legislation that would have removed excited delirium from law enforcement training. Are they still going forward with that now? They are. It'll look a little bit differently. Judy Amabile is in the state house. She was a part of the group that's leading that. And she wants to stick with it for a couple of reasons. One, not all law enforcement training is covered under post, and they want to make sure that they don't leave any gaps there. And she's also worried about excited delirium being replaced by other diagnosis and other terms that are equally fraught. One of the things we don't want to have happen is that people just substitute different terms. We want them to talk about somebody's behaviors. We don't want them to come up with some other term because there are a bunch of other terms. Excited delirium syndrome, hyperactive delirium, agitated delirium, exhaustive mania. And we don't want them to just substitute one of those terms. And we should note, Elijah McLean's death had already prompted lawmakers to pass a law on this a couple of years ago. That limited the use of ketamine in non-medical settings. It was tied to that panel that Dr. Jones sat on. Allison, how has the idea of excited delirium and the use of ketamine played out so far in the trial now underway of the two paramedics charged in connection with Elijah McClain's death? Yeah, well, I mean, this entire trial is about training ketamine and how the paramedics are supposed to treat people. McLean was a 23-year-old massage therapist walking home from a convenience store in August 2019 when three or more police officers stopped him after receiving a call about a suspicious person. He was forcibly taken to the ground. He was given two carotid holds, which cut blood flow off to his brain. And he was handcuffed while he was vomiting into a mask he was wearing and inhaling it. But when paramedics arrived, 
Um, they determined that he had excited delirium based on what the law enforcement officers told them and what they said they saw on the scene. And he was given 500 milligrams of the powerful sedative ketamine, which was way too large of a dose for his body weight, almost twice what he should have gotten. And at the time of getting that medication, he was catatonic. He wasn't really speaking. But you can hear the law enforcement officers on the body-worn camera saying, that he was exhibiting crazy strength, that he nearly did a push-up with all three officers holding him down at one time. And even if that was all true, I mean, I, we didn't see that in the body camera, but a lot of it we didn't see because the cameras fell off. By the time the paramedics got there and made that determination about the ketamine, he wasn't exhibiting anything. He was laying on the ground. He was barely speaking. Um, McLean lost his pulse in the ambulance after that dose of ketamine, and he never regained consciousness, and he was declared brain dead a few days later. The cases against the three police officers are finished. Um, two were acquitted, and one was convicted of criminally negligent homicide in McLean's death. Allison and Tom, thank you for your insights. You're welcome. Of course. CPR's Allison Sherry and Tom Hess Read daily coverage of the trial of the paramedics charged in the death of Elijah McLean at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? Is there actually a spring in Colorado Springs? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the CPR newsroom. And we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. If you grew up in the 90s and you were a huge fan of Madonna, like I totally was back in the day, you probably heard of Vogue. that Madonna brought this highly stylized dance to the masses through her 90s hit song, music video, and performances. But what many do not know, yes, including me, is that the dance was not new at the time. Far from it. It actually dates back to the 1960s and was one of the many cultural expressions that came from an underground Black and Latinx LGBTQ subculture that originated in New York City, known as ballroom culture. For more of a current reference, think Beyonce's Renaissance Tour meets RuPaul's Drag Race on steroids. And pageantry and intense competition is all part of it. Well, ballroom culture is still a thing across the country to this day. Yes, even here in Colorado. And an event recently held in Denver celebrated it in all of its pomp and circumstance glory. Two people sitting here with me in the studio today know all about it, and they're more than happy to school us on the backstory of ballroom culture. 
Michael Robertson is a New York City-based university professor, advocate, activist, artist, and leader within the LGBTQ community. And Davery Glam Loren is a fellow ballroom expert. And when he's not on the ballroom culture scene, you may see him on the stage performing as a professional dancer with Denver-based Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Theater. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Give us the Cliff Notes version of the backstory of the LGBTQ ballroom scene. Let's start with you, Michael. Ballroom emerges in the Harlem Renaissance. This black folk move to Harlem, and Harlem becomes the new black mecca in contestation to the black church. Mm. The black church created a three-decade campaign to get rid of black queers, and there were three ways we congregated. At rent parties, at beauty salons, and drag balls. And drag balls, to me, become not only a political movement, but a theological movement around what it means and matters, and through the ethos of black trans women. And then it migrated across the country after World War II, and then in 1967, a black trans woman in Crystal Abasia resisted racism and colorism in the pageant circuit. And a guy named Phil Black, who was the only African-American drag performer at the Screen at the Skill Card, whispers, that's my reimagination because I wasn't there, in her ear to say, let's go back to old Harlem drag ball circuit. And they had a ball. And then you begin to see the creation from drag ball, which meant only trans people participated, Mm. to the construction of house ball. Mm. Houses being named after these five trans women that were important at the time, Pepe La Beja, Dorian Corey, Avis Pendarvis, Paris Dupree, and Duchess LaWong. And then houses were named after them. We're going to get into that house aspect of it. But Davery, we're not talking about the waltz and the rumba here or something you'd see on, say, Dancing with the Stars. What's your take on ballroom culture? Ballroom culture for me is just a, it's, for me, it's a lifestyle. Mm. Um, it's it's how I walk, how I present myself um, in the same facet that I take dance seriously and professionally. I was always told growing up, like, if you're going to become this dancer, every moment of your essence is dance. You mm. go into the grocery store, you're walking and you're so dancing. You're floating on air. <laughs> yes. So, so sometimes when I go and shop, because I'm also a stylist, I think ballroom. That's mm. just like, it's natural for me to dress a certain way because that's just, just my lifestyle. That's how I want to show up. That's how I want to present myself that way. And it just bleeds into everything that I touch. So there are events with this and just Describe it for a person who's never been to a ballroom experience. Imagine the Olympics. You have different countries representing their country, right? Mm-hmm. And you have so ju- you imagine like that opening ceremony when everyone's got on their different so that the, ab- gear absolutely. that represents their country. And so you have judges on a panel for competitions that represent each judge. Same thing at a ball. You have judges who represent houses. And they're competing for different categories, Vogue category, runway category, Mm. fashion categories, aesthetics categories like face or body or sex sirens. We have categories around PSAs, around health stuff. And so, and it's exciting, you know, Mm -hmm. and and every generation will tell you, my generation will tell you, oh, today ballroom is not as exciting as it is. That's just the old stuff. (laughs) And it's expanding. And so we have to sometimes allow the younger generation to take its own course. Mm -hmm. Um, But it can be very, very exciting, engaging to to what Davery said. It does become. When you leave a ball, there is something that oftentimes you get. There is a a sense of self about being a part of this community that I think that you don't get anywhere else. And I'm not overly romanticizing because we got our stuff too. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a sense of self. 
Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But Davery, a lot of people may not realize how this is influencing pop culture and American culture. Can you explain to us the many ways that you feel that this culture has influenced those two worlds? I'm going to go back to the 90s and I'm going to put everybody back there. How were people dressing back then? We had mentioned in conversation about Tupac. All the rappers the back rapper, then, Tupac, the late how were they all Tupac. dressing? Big baggy clothes, extra, 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 extra large T-shirts, fitted caps. Now you look at today's rappers, and they all have got skinny jeans on, mm. regardless if they're in rock or not. They have blinged out belts. They have accessories that are just so avant-garde. They're at fashion shows wearing the most, and it, it looks very ballroom-like, yeah. and now it's accepted. And just, what, 23 years ago, it wasn't like that. When I was in high school, really discovering myself, my wardrobe changed a lot by the time I graduated because I was like, I this is what I feel comfortable. This is my essence. And I was thinking like, I bet you in about 10, 15 years, everybody's going to be dressing just like the girls. And now they are. And it's like, it's so much better because I hated the way people would dress because it looked just so boring. It didn't look exciting. It didn't look like a, a personality. Well, what I find interesting about this is hip hop has been under fire a lot for being very machismo. But in a way, it sounds like you're saying that this LGBTQ culture has influenced their style. And maybe people aren't aware of where that comes from. And we have. I'll always reference Devil Rose Prada in the scene where she Mm. talks about the uh, the blue sweater. And like, you don't know how much work goes into that and then discover who are those people in the room to make those decisions. You don't even know what you're wearing and where it came from and where it has always come from. Wow. Now, Michael, you mentioned houses. For what I understand, there are houses and lots and lots of houses in this. (laughs) Can you explain that? And I also understand that there are parents to the houses. Yes. So a house is very similar to some degree of a fraternity and a sorority. That's what, when I heard about yeah. this, that's my first thought is right. a fraternity or sorority. sorority. Except for that the partly the creation of houses was to some degree children or people being ostracized out of either their family of out origin. Out of their biological family. And or and or black family. Because mm. be real mm. clear that you black mean the black folk, community. Absolutely. Okay. So the notion through homophobia and pushing black LGBT folk out of the black family, so these houses become sort of that protection around that. And initially houses were named after these five women and it was just mother-daughter. But then in 1973, the very first gay man walked a ball named Erskine Christian. He mm. walked Models Magazine face. And it entered gay men to participate. And then you begin to see houses out of Brooklyn being created, House of Chanel, House of Ebony, the, to bring a certain kind of masculinity in the ballroom. And then houses became mother, father, and children. And houses that saved lives. When you think about the AIDS epidemic, and when there were no one sort of addressing our issues, it were these houses and house parents who organized, who mobilized, who got monies to bury people, to take care of people. Houses have built people up. Houses have sent people to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. 
So it's really recreating a family environment. It is. But also to your point about the sororities and fraternities, and I know I attended an historically black college, right. so that is a whole world in terms of black fraternities and sororities, but they all have their different vibes. So would yes. that be accurate to say these houses it, have a vibe? Absolutely. It's changed some now. But so, when so I was people younger, walking up to you like you look, you look like, like at Mugler. Yeah. Mugler yes. was a house about face and body and sex siren. Ebony was a house about realness. The difference, only difference between houses and fraternities, one of the difference between houses and fraternities and sororities is that you, if you are a Delta, you're always a Delta. Always. And, and but you don't have to stay in the the you don't, but you, oh, you can't join house. another sorority. And in in ballroom, I've been in eight houses. I've created four, but I've been in eight houses. So, so yeah. you move from house to I house. Have. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this culture clearly has a rich history, but it's not a relic of the past. It's still alive and thriving, including here in Colorado. Dave Reed, tell us a little bit about how this experience plays out here in the Rocky Mountain State. When I moved to Denver from Ohio in uh, 2013, mm-hmm. I used to go around to all the clubs. I was definitely a club kid growing up. Mm-hmm. So when I moved here, I was still in that zone. I was, uh, And you were looking for that here. I, I was because that's what I'm used to. Um, and when I went out, I didn't see anything like me. Mm. Um but that didn't stop me from, you know, I would vogue in a corner. Like Yeah, I heard that <laughs> I you would... were just like, I'm voguing. So <laughs> yes. whether you are participating or not, that's what right. I'm doing. Right, regardless. If the beats drops, I'm going to be scatting somewhere in a corner or in the middle of the floor. And people started acknowledging that, but they didn't know what I was doing. Really? Or some people it knew what it was, but they didn't know how to do it. Mm. So I just felt like just alone, honestly, in, in the ballroom culture, I should say, not in the... LGBTQIA plus community. But I just kept going with it. And then um, one club, they had a ball. And me and uh, actually the coordinator for the Black Fantasy Ball. Which we're going to talk about shortly. We uh, attended this ball and realized like, oh, this community needs like some help because they don't know. They they all just watched Pose. The television series Pose. Or they just seen Paris is Burning. And they kind of brought us in to coordinate um, more of appropriated version of a ball. And so we did with like five other friends, actually Evie Otley, that was on RuPaul. And from there, we just expanded and we tried to tinker and work on things. And that just brought more of people that want to be involved with ballroom that turned into a whole giant group of us, um, which it was still relatively small at the time. And that just branched out into different houses and um, more opportunities for ballroom to be seen around here, throwing functions, throwing these balls. And then I'm just, for me, I'm just excited to go from that one person to now seeing like 300, 500 people mm. um, at this ball. And it's it's so overwhelming. I don't even have the words for it just because <laughs> I, I just, I never expected myself to be in a position or have these kind of feelings because I'm just so used to just being a part of it. I'm being a spectator, being part of a house and for someone to have helped start it in a place where it didn't exist is just... So you are really one of the architects of the ballroom scene of Colorado. It's crazy to say it, but yes. <laughs> I see a sense of pride on your face about that. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so well, happy. The advocacy organization Black Pride Colorado recently paid homage to this culture as it does every fall during its annual Fantasy Ball event in Denver. This year's theme was 
007, and I must say it was a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand on your feet for your host for the night, the one, the only, Juicy 007. Hi, my name is Juicy Misdemeanor, and I live in Denver, Colorado. Tell me what you think about the Black Fantasy Ball. Well, as someone who has put together an historian this function, I think the Black Fantasy Ball is fabulous. My name in ballroom is Juicy007, and I am here to hopefully and continuously curate and develop ballroom community for our city. What has it meant to you to be a part of this community? I simply love, love, love ballroom. I love the community the way we get to express ourselves, the way there is no binary, the way there's no gender, just full love and expression. I, I love being a part of it, and I wish there was just more of ballroom all over. What do you want people to know about ballroom culture? I want people to know that ballroom culture is not a new thing. It's not a new fad. It's been around forever. You know what I mean? It's always been over, period. And um, I want them to know that we are thriving. We are really thriving. Byron Johnson Garcon and I live in Los Angeles, California. So did you come in town for this? Yes, I did. So what are your thoughts? It's just, it's just very groundbreaking to see Denver moving forward in the ballroom community. It's a great turnout. What has being in the ballroom scene meant to you personally? Personally, it's just allowed me to be more confident, express myself with um, no judgment, having a safe space. What are your thoughts about how ballroom culture influences American culture? I'm all for it. I, I think it's, it's a part of, ballroom culture is a part of American culture, which makes it part of our country's history. So I'm just all for that. Parker McMullen Bushman, and I'm from Denver, Colorado. I was inspired by a 007 villain, Baron Samdi. Um, it's like 70s, like voodoo villain, and that is my inspired my look tonight. So tell us, how are you feeling about the ball tonight? You know, it's just always such an amazing, like, energized space. What has it meant to you personally to be a part of this community? It's just been so special because sometimes it's hard to find spaces where you can fully be yourself, where people uh, respect and honor who you are. And um, I love that I get the opportunity to fully be who I am uh, in this space and to be celebrated as a black, queer, plus size, femme, non-binary person. Like, it's just special to find spaces of community. In Colorado. In Colorado. These are my people. I love it so much. <laughs> wow, pretty cool. So, Michael, yes. how does it feel to relive those moments from Black Pride Colorado's Black Fantasy Ball? As long as I've been in a ballroom now, I can choose which balls I want to go to. So I got the best experience. And I love that Colorado is doing what it's doing because the feeling of a new scene, congregating, organizing, creating safe space, I call it creating the black church for mm. other folk. 
the 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 call and re- the response. You know, you talked about voguing. You bring in Madonna, and absolutely right, she nationalized and put it in our the landscape. Put it in the mainstream. In the mainstream. But the fact of the matter is that two black women, Jodie Watley and Queen Latifah, had voguing in their videos mm. in 1987. And so yeah, I, I used to love Jodie. Uh, that's now. right. Come on now. <laughs> and I say that to say only because to also to see in Denver that is created from this sort of black space. Very different in certain spaces in Europe. So just to feel that black pride is is just a remarkable feeling. I guess because of the small percentage of the black population here, to know that it's here and thriving here was surprising to me. Davery, what do you want to say about what it felt like to relive those moments at the Black Fantasy Ball and hearing how people are experiencing it? I'm I'm going to piggyback off the the church remark because every time I go to a ball I just feel refreshed. Mm. Um and that's something people can also relate to um just congregating and fellowshipping at functions like like this it fills me. It motivates me especially after this function, the next function, just elevating my house, all the kids like they were excited um and it was just it's beautiful just to be able to be in a room to fellowship with that many people. Um, as like, like I said before, I've been in a room, it was just me. As an architect of the ballroom movement here in Colorado, what are you trying to achieve with experiences like the Black Fantasy Ball, which of course is held annually now? The first thing is not only do I want to create these um, safe spaces, these artistic venues for people to express their extraness or their queerness or whatever you want to label it, also bring the appreciation to uh, social uh, issues as well that affect our community and not just ballroom. Like there's so many things that go beyond just coming to a ball. The trials and tribulations, I want to not only highlight what we celebrate, but also the things that also tear us down. A ball I did before was highlighting cash bail and um, decriminalizing sex work. So you're using it for advocacy as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't want it just to be a gimmick. I don't want it to just be a gig that some some girls want to book us for to do this because they've been to this ball and they've seen what we can do and they want to use that talent. Mm. Um, we're more than just talent when we come to these functions. The other thing I want to see is more celebration for people of color here in Denver. We don't have those spaces and it's uh, tooth and nail um, trying to get these spaces and trying to make it more consistent working with uh, Dr. Tara organizations. Founder of Black Pride Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to get these other organizations on board to represent people of color in the queer scene. Let's bring another voice into our conversation, trans fashion model Dominique Jackson, who has been described as, quote, an icon ballroom hall of famer. Dominique, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. What's your take on what is ballroom culture? Ballroom culture is it's life, it's community for many people who did not have access to uh, everyday society because said society didn't want us there. So we created spaces for ourselves to be able to have that joy. And like we say, I do piggyback on the comments about church, because when you go in there, there is that refreshing space. There is that feeling of, I don't have to pretend. 
I don't have to put on a face. You can really be you. And especially now with the newer generation, we have expanded. Ballroom, it started in, in around where upstate and spread across. And mm-hmm. for me, ballroom was something that you had to come to New York to do, to be a part of. If you weren't in but New not York, anymore. right? <laughs> and then that expanded to, you know, DC. There was DC. And then, you know, now to have it here in Colorado is something that's absolutely amazing. It lets it speaks volumes to the fact that we are everywhere. Hmm. People want to be a part of something, connecting with people. Ballroom is actually much deeper than just a connection on proximity level. It is a connection that comes out of a lot of pain and trauma. Mm. It is a connection that that you find people because you are going through basically the same things that they are going through. And you are able to now see people that have been through what you have been through and are now thriving. So with Ballroom, that connection is extremely, extremely important. And it's it's very, very deep. It is actually can be and has been a life or death connection. You led right into my, what was going to be my next question. As you've all stated, these balls, they take place all across the country. They're fierce. They're fabulous and a lot of fun. But on a more serious note, ballroom culture was really born out of need, a desire for a sense of belonging. Can you elaborate on that, Dominique? Well, I can speak to my story. You know, I didn't even have a name for for myself. I just knew that I was different and I didn't feel like I had to have a name. But because of the people in ballroom, and when I say a name, a label, and because of the people in ballroom, they let me realize that the labels were just nothing <laughs> but expensive. <laughs> you, what you really needed to find was what people that you connected to, like as I was saying before, you needed to find those people that were similar to you those people that could help you along your journey. When you're coming from that pain and trauma of growing up with people that are told, that tell you they love you every day, and then all of a sudden, because of this one thing now, everything changes. Where Meaning do you, go? you coming out? It sounds weird. It may sound weird coming from me, but I don't feel like any of us had to come out. I feel like many of you <laughs> weren't ready. Mm, and you didn't know what the, was, the, was happening. As in the heterosexual yes. world? Yes. And so in that world, it was like something is wrong with us. So we had to now hide ourselves when in all actuality, we were living a truth that most people could not. And that was we were having a freedom that imprisoned us mm. in the sense that, OK, yeah, we are this free to be ourselves. But then we are imprisoned by the rest of the world. So what did we do? Just like we did as slaves and we found the Underground Railroad, we found ballroom. We got ballroom to be that space where we could be free, where we could be ourselves. And when we talk about ballroom, you're talking about the fabulousness of ballroom. You also have to get to the concept of family. Mm. And that family is not just some family that goes, hey, you my sister girl and we'll cut you down the next day. No, this is family of where mothers and fathers actually sacrifice themselves, their bodies, Mm. for their kids to be able to have education, for their kids to eat. Right. These kids that were ostracized, put out of their own families, these mothers and fathers in ballroom took them in and, and, and created this space. So all the community organizations that you see right now, the organizations that we had weren't getting grants because there was some woman in the Bronx or somewhere else that was trans. And because they declared that she was insane and gave her an apartment, she was able to bring other people in to be mm-hmm. able to nurture them and give them that safe space to be themselves. 
Davery, what has being a part of this ballroom culture meant to you personally? I knew that question was going to come up. <laughs> and I get emotional every time I think about it. So I see bear with some me. tears welling up. Um, it means everything to me. And we can talk for five days and five nights about this. Um, but I'm going to try to keep it in five minutes. Um, I, I come from a very, 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 very itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka dot bikini family. So friends to me are like my brothers and sisters. Hmm. Ballroom to me, having people in ballroom for years and having people in there for decades is those those are my mentors. Those are the ones I look up. Those are my aunties and uncles in in a facet, mothers and fathers as well. Not to discredit my own, but just like my dance mentors, they get that part of me more than my biological did. And like I said, it's it's everything. Mm. I can't see myself not being a part of ballroom regardless, no matter what happens. I've learned a lot of uh, life lessons just being in ballroom if it wasn't for those people. Still tough to talk about. Still tough to talk about. But it's, it's, it's definitely filled a void for you. Oh, Yes. <laughs> yes. And now that I'm slightly older, now I have to be <laughs> in a different role. It's amazing to be in a position to also give back, see, which makes it. tosses the blonde locks, <laughs> I have to <laughs> add, for those who can't see this. Um, yes. Yeah, so now I feel like the, the aunties and uncles, the moms and dads that I've had in ballroom, now that I've gotten to that point, of like, okay, now what do you do? Because I wasn't really taught for my biological uh, family, like how to be an actual adult, how to be a parent. I don't have actual kids of my own. I have my ballroom kids and I treat them just exactly the same. Um, the same way you're talking about feeding them and educating them and giving them opportunities that society did not have for us. I still to this day do that with anybody I'm involved with. It could be a friend. It could be a co-worker. It's definitely going to be for my children hmm. because if I can have it, they're going to have it the same, if not more. That's everything to me. So you moved to Colorado in 2013. What has it meant to have that culture here now? Like any given Tuesday, honestly. But you brought this for a wider audience beyond yourself. I don't know. Maybe if you had not been a part of this, maybe it might not have happened. This is true, but I feel like it was going to find me anyway. <laughs> it was. Well, was it going to find Colorado is my question. Anywhere I go, you'll see ballroom. Okay. The same way I am ballroom, been ballroom, I live and breathe ballroom. Like, you cannot not see ballroom within me. It's so wild. You, so, so, so would you say you knew when you came to Colorado in 2013 that you were bringing ballroom with you? Absolutely. It was on the plane. Actually, it wasn't on a plane. I drove here from Ohio. It was, it in was the, packed in the, it was car, in the car, probably in the glove compartment. And I was like, oh, let me unpack it. Boom. And it was ballroom. Like, okay, I cannot not show this facet of myself. Everybody else has got to be uncomfortable with it. Uh, but I'm going to show up as myself and y'all going to realize what this is. Some people are going to find that this is something that they need that they didn't even know. Michael, what has it meant to you to be a part of this culture? So mine is similar and, and different. It didn't fill a void. It expanded a love. I came, the greatest person that ever existed on planet Earth was my mother. Mm. And uh, the beauty of being born through the womb of that black woman. 
And so my ability to do, to be for others what she was to me, and I had no idea that that was going to be the case. My father was not there, and it makes sense, and there was an abandonment that I felt. So to your point, it makes sense. Let me back up and correct myself because I have a whole bunch of children. Everyone critiques me on that. And I have a lot of sons. Biological sons? No. Sons. Sons in ballroom. Okay. So sons in ballroom. My kinship sons. But to, to and to Davy's point, you can't tell me any different. You know, people critique me. I love on my children very a little too much. I don't know what that really means, but it's absolutely the truth. And that I have a lot of sons because in many ways it was cathartic for the abandonment I felt from my father. And so that that the other thing to me to, is the ability, the ability to help invoice unapologetically a history, an excavation of a history within black history, within queer history, within American history, to say to folk, this is absolutely your history. To tell these people who've been told that we were not good enough, we're not valuable enough, we're not worthy enough, that absolutely would change the world. Last thing I'll say about that, because you brought up a wonderful point around, ask Davey around how it shaped pop culture, right? If you watch every reality TV show that's black, those black cis women are talking like black gay men and are dressing and performing not just like black trans women, they're dressing and performing like black trans women from ballroom because a lot of them have makeup artists hairstylists, choreographers who are ballroom black Latinx gay men and they've taken these pictures, they've taken these videos. So you're saying they're bringing media. this to the culture, these these uh, hairstylists, these all makeup of, artists. these All of those things. Tell me what that looks like. Give me some examples. I'm going to guess it's the eyelashes. That's one. Well, not even just that. So, <laughs> all of it. So, so, I'm sorry, so, that's so when you, that, No, no, that's okay. The fact that you see cis black women now with bodies like this, small waists, all of these hips and breasts, that's an exact replica of black trans women from ballroom. And so this, so, that, so that's that. Love and hip hop, to your wonderful point, in Hollywood, love and hip hop Hollywood, I was watching their, one of their reunion shows and all of the black men were there dressed out in bling, bling, bling. And that's reflective of a category called high fashion streetwear in the house ball balling community. If I could talk about uh, Amber Rose, even though she walked balls. Amber she was Rose, in, former yeah, sorry. Uh, partner of, of Kanye, Kanye West. West. She was and, in the um, house of Quran in Philadelphia. Her whole look comes from a black trans woman named uh, Tanya Prada out of Chicago. I can go on and on. Jocelyn Hernandez is giving Stasha Garçon. And I just go on and on and, and connect these folks. So really, we're experiencing ballroom culture, and many people don't even realize it. Exactly. They've become the mannequins of ballroom. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I love the way you put that. Yeah. I love Thank the way you put that. that. Yeah. Thank you all so much for schooling us on this. This You're is welcome. absolutely fascinating. And I can honestly say I've learned so much. Thank you all for being here. Oh, thank you. And thank you. Davery Glam-Loren, a dancer with Denver's Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Company, Michael Robertson and Dominique Jackson, all experts and enthusiasts of the underground movement known as ballroom culture, which was founded by members of New York City's Black and Latino LGBTQ community, Back in the 1960s, that movement features fierce and fabulous runway style competitions, but it's also about creating safe spaces and now thriving here in Colorado. 
Special thanks to Black Pride Colorado for inviting us to its annual Black Fantasy Ball. You may learn more about the advocacy organization at blackpridedenver.com. Grace Kelly, hollow jean, picture of a beauty queen. Jean Kelly, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, dance on air. They had style, they had grace. Rita Hayward gave good faith. Lauren, Catherine, Manitou, Betty Davis, we love you. Ladies with an attitude, fellas that were in the mood. Don't just stand there, let's get to it. Strike the pose, there's nothing to it. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is CPR News and KRCC. Oh, 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 oh.